Thank you everyone for joining us today for Harnessing the Power of Modern Data. This really is an encore presentation from an amazing panel we had in Denver for the Master's Conference. So we decided to record this for everyone. I'm Rick Clark. I'm one of the co-founders of ESI Analyst, which was acquired by Cloud9 back in August of last year. And I'm here as your moderator today, and we'll be guiding us through this pretty awesome subject. But first, let's kick off in, with introductions with our panel. So, Alicia. Hi, Sorry. I'm Alicia Hawley. I am a senior discovery attorney in the e-discovery and information governance practice group at Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe. I have been in the e-discovery space for almost 20 years, which is hard to say out loud, but I've been here as it's evolved from what it used to be with hard copy review and into morphing into e-discovery into where we are now, where we have an overwhelmingly large volume of data to deal with on a daily basis. All right, Jerry. Hi, I'm thrilled to be back with my co-panelists. My name is Jerry Bowie. I'm a managing director at FTI Consulting. I lead the Emerging Data Systems Advisory Initiative for Digital Forensics. Prior to FTI, I worked at Inventus and Lighthouse and ran the global digital forensics groups there. And then prior to that, I was with the uh, big four. So in reverse order, I was with PricewaterhouseCoopers, Ernst & Young, and KPMG doing e-discovery and forensic technology. That's great. Thank you, Jerry. And Aaron? Hi, good morning. I'm Aaron Perzak with Parent Discovery. I'm the co-founder of Parent Discovery. We're based here in Denver, and I've been in the Denver market like Alicia for scarily a little over 20 years now. During that time, I have gone back and forth between working in-house at law firms as well as on the service provider side. And currently, Parent Discovery focused on the forensics and e-discovery side of our business. Awesome. Thanks, Aaron. And Melissa. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here with you all again. I'm Melissa Weberman. I am the lead attorney and managing director of the law firm Arnold & Porter's Electronic Discovery and Data Analytics Group. We call it eData. This is a fantastic topic. It's something that we're grappling with all the time, and it's only getting worse. So it is great to be here and look forward to this. Awesome. All right. So let's kick off the discussion today. Again, this is an encore presentation from Denver Masters Conference. It was really just a pleasure. And so the focus today is really, again, harnessing the power of modern data. And what we're really finding is that it's the evidence out there is growing and in, in many different ways, right? Not only volumes, but also applications. So well, we heard from an attorney that we were working with back in the day when we started, evidence is our case. It's made up of three things, evidence, lack of evidence, and inference. Now, today with all of this evidence, there's really, there's not a lack of, but sometimes it is actually a lack of acquiring that data. So today we're going to talk a lot about data identification, authentication of that data, and then data use for analysis and review. So... As we kick off this subject in data identification, we first probably want to start with what's the big challenge that we're seeing out there. And Jerry would love to hear from you and kick this part off as well. Sure. Yeah, I'll start. So this slide, it's entitled Overview of Social Media Use. And the reason why we focus on social media is because it's so emblematic of the growth and the explosive growth of data 
within the internet. And it's often characterized as what's the current evolution of the internet, Web 2, if you've ever heard that term, Web 2.0. But look at these numbers in terms of the number of social media users. You're looking at 4.62 billion. By the way, Facebook or Meta has 3 billion of those users logging in. And that's their user base. In fact, every single day, they've got 2 billion users logging in and out of Facebook. And then the, another kind of metric to point out here is the average daily time spent on using social media in blue. So you look at the average there is two hours and 27 minutes, but that's the average globally. If you look at each geography individually, like South Korea, the users there are spending around five hours on average per person per day. So an enormous amount of time that's being dedicated to being online and all of the communication associated with that. And the reason why we mentioned that in the context of our, our webinar today is that a lot of the relevant custodians will have uh, some portion of potential communication, whether it's business or related to your matter um, otherwise uh, within the social media realm, because social media does have chat functions and file sharing functions. A lot of these platforms do inherit or enable uh, that type of interaction with other relevant custodians and witnesses. Yeah, I think, it, I think this is, these graphics are so interesting because I think they're, as you mentioned, they're so representative of what we're dealing with now. It used to just be emails. That was all we had to think about. And now just within the category of social media, we have all these different ones that we have to think about. And then we have to look at collaboration tools and there's a variety of collaboration tools. And then we have to think about communication that's not social media based and what those look like. And I think I try, I didn't say this at the outset, but I always try to come from a really a practitioner perspective because that's what I am. I'm a practitioner. So I try to think about what do I need to be doing as a practitioner to deal with all of this? And this can be overwhelming when you look at these graphs and you look at these numbers and you think, oh my God, where do I start? What am I supposed to be doing with all of this? And I think the answer to that is really early, very early on in the case, it's so important to sit down with the IT department of your client or with individual users and learn what apps are they using? How are they using them? What type of data and communications are channeling through each of those different types of platforms? Because you can't make informed decisions about how to proceed and you can't have informed negotiations with opposing counsel without having all of this knowledge. And so I just think it's so important. It's overwhelming at the beginning, but I think it's so important to just sit down with people and say, how do you communicate with your coworkers? What devices are you using? What applications are you using? One of the things obviously that we're facing and some of the other panelists I know can talk about this. One of the things that we face that's an issue too, is the commingling of data between personal and business. So a lot of people use their cell phones for work purposes as well. And so now we're not only dealing with, okay, what apps are you using? We're dealing with what apps are you using and are you using them for both personal and business purposes? Because now you've got even more factors to be considering. So that's all I would really say at this outset is it's really overwhelming, but the key and the most important thing is to sit down and have conversations with people so you can figure out how to how expansive you need to be, or more importantly, how narrow you can be in, in what you're targeting and collecting and reviewing. Yeah, absolutely. And Jerry was referencing this graphic as well of just you know, what Meta has as far as control over these chat applications. But Aaron would like to hear from you, 
your thoughts on both the previous graphic and this and just how, you know, these apps are impacting uh, forensics and uh, review and discovery. Yeah. So I think on the previous slide, the thing that still to me is the most striking is just the idea of that number of total social media users versus total internet users. And I don't know why that still surprises me, but it does. That's a really high percentage of, if you're on the internet, more likely than not, you're on social media. And I think that's one that legal teams in particular need to keep in mind. I do think that we have seen progressively more and more legal teams start to really dig into social media. But I still think that there's a lot of teams out there that, that don't necessarily consider that as a first option of, hey, you know, it really can be your greatest source for background information to a lot of things, especially based on those numbers of the idea of almost 94% of people out there are social media users in general, just versus those who use the internet. So it's pretty crazy to me. But on the next slide, this really does tie into that previous slide in the sense of this is based on Android devices and the messaging apps that are used on those Androids by location. I think that for most of us, it's really no surprise that Facebook is the dominant for North America in general, especially the US and Canada. But what's intriguing is to see how big really WhatsApp is. And when you look at kind of the combination of those two together, the percentage of the world that, that are on those apps. Now, it is important also to remember, I guess, if you're looking at this from the idea of what do I need to collect, that these are the dominant apps. There are certainly going to be other apps that need to be looked at in particular things that I would note is like, we commonly see WhatsApp when we're doing collections now here. So it's not an either or type of scenario. It's simply, this is what the dominant app looks like, but you should always be on the lookout for all of these. In addition to others, it's every other month, something new is popping up. And so you really have to be on top of things as far as what messaging apps exist and where that information might be. Yeah, that's great, Aaron. And then Melissa, when you're in your practice, when you're looking at identifying forms of communications and even other potentially data types, what are you seeing and how you're going about working with your clients and identifying those types of data that could be necessary? Yeah. So I'll be honest. These days we are, and lawyers are slow on the uptake. We know this. We are still seeing mostly email evidence in our cases. And I'll be honest, that is very often our preference. We have an easier time working with email evidence. This is though simply not going to fly all that much longer. It's not how the business people at our clients are communicating with each other. A lot of them are barely using email at all and getting away with limiting documentary evidence to email or maybe emails and some text messages. I think that's likely going to be pretty quickly changing and more and more I'm, ha I'm having to get my arms around data types that I'm frankly unfamiliar with. And we can try our best to limit the scope of discovery, but if during initial custodial interviews, we learn that our clients are using other ways of communicating, that's where the evidence is. And we're gonna have to go there. 
Exactly. Yeah, we're seeing, and we'll talk more about this uh, here shortly, but Slack and corporate chat applications, internally, we migrate from sending emails internally to just firing up Teams or Slack and then sending a quick message. So yeah, we're finding that to be a bit more. So then it's the next step is authenticating this data and how do we go about collecting and then making sure we have a... Sorry, Rick. Yeah. Try to interrupt since we're recording and we can edit. Can I make an, another point about that last slide? I know. I want to make a point about that slide too. I was going <laughs> to jump in. I had something to say to tag team on what Melissa said. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if we have the same thought in mind, Alicia. Yes. Do you want to go first? No, no, please go ahead and I'll jump in after you. Okay. All right. So pausing for Savannah here. So another, I think, takeaway from this slide is look at the area in purple. It's WeChat, and you don't see purple much anywhere else, but WeChat is really commonly used in China there, what's represented on the map in purple for normal everyday business communication, right? It's not a third-party chat app that's considered part of chat, part of shadow IT that users are spinning up on their own. It's really a sanctioned app, sanctioned in the definition of being approved or a de facto mode of communication for personal and business. So if you're like a salesperson that's doing business development in China, it's almost required that you install WeChat on your phone in order to conduct business. So it's helpful to look at this map when conducting interviews to get a sense ahead of time of where your custodians live, what's the most commonly used chat app in that geography, and ask whether or not that's something that they use for relevant communication. Yeah, I, and to piggyback on what you just said, Jerry, and what Melissa was saying earlier, it's true that lawyers are really behind the times, generally speaking. And a lot of times when I'm joining a case team or something and I'll ask, what about cell phones or what about social media or whatever? And I always just get the, oh no, we're not doing that. And it's okay, but did you ask? And so it's, you have to start doing the asking to figure out what we actually need to do. And I heard somebody at a panel that I was attending earlier this year say that within the next five years, the shift will be to 80 some percent of data will be structured data. And I think a lot of statistics are made up on the spot, but I think the sentiment was correct. Whether that statistic is correct or not, I have no idea. But I think the sentiment is correct that we are moving from email, not just to collaboration tools, but to structured data. And that's a whole other world. And lawyers are like not ready for that, I don't think. But we have to be ready for it. And I do, I have a tendency to do a lot of DOJ cases and a lot of patent cases and intellectual property cases, which are totally unrelated types of law. And in intellectual property cases, there's email is usually not a thing. Structured data absolutely is a thing. And I don't really know anything about JIRA and Confluence databases, but I have to have experts around me who can tell me how those function and what the data output looks like and what kind of reports can be run and how you can capture the data that you want. And I think that's really important to, to Melissa's point and to Jerry's point. It, we, there are experts out there on data types and I'm not going to be that person all the time, but I have to have access to those people and to sit down and ask questions and figure out what the best way is to attack certain types of data. Yeah. And so with all of these data types, we could find them on devices, but if it's like Jira Confluence, you need to pull that down from the application itself. Same with Slack. So there's all sorts of ways this data needs to get acquired. 
So the next phase of this really is data authentication, right? How do we go about collecting this data in a forensically sound manner that makes sure, make sure there's no potential spoliation along the way? So when we look at this, I like to pull up one example we hear often, and I know we've got some counterpoints to this, so it's always fun. But the first is really, let's say, let's just take a phone, for instance, and do a screenshot of a text message. Is that looking at this particular one, does that look like it is a real text message? Yes. <laughs> it looks authentic. I happened to grab that directly from ifaketextmessage.com. So this was all of 30 seconds to key in the conversation I wanted to capture. And so as much as it is used sometimes, and Melissa, I'm going to turn over to you here shortly for some counterpoints here, but you can, you need to have an authentic authentication process around this data, even if it is just a handful of text messages from a screenshot, because that's all you really needed. Melissa, what are your thoughts here? Yeah. So first of all, well done. I fake textmessage.com. This is, looks good to me. And uh, that's right. On its face, it looks to be authentic. And uh, there is some case law out there that suggests that screenshots are not, more than suggest that have ruled that screenshots are not necessarily admissible in court. My position on this is maybe a little controversial, though maybe not. Okay, so first, collections, especially remote collections, relatively cheap. So maybe collecting at the outset of data sources that you know are going to be relevant. We know that our clients are using those means of communicating. Maybe we do that. However, does that mean that we ultimately have to process that data, load up that data, produce that data with all the metadata? That becomes expensive. And depending on the needs of the case, sometimes, in my opinion, we don't need to do it. Screenshots can be authenticated using the normal ways that we authenticate all documents. Rick, you're, you created this using ifaketextmessage.com, but you're an honest guy. And if you came into court, would you testify that this is a true and accurate depiction of something that you actually sent to Rob here? And maybe you would, and then we would litigate that. Yeah. Ultimately we may need to bolster production of screenshots in order to prove that in fact, this is an authentic text message to Rob. But depending on the needs of the case, it may not be required. There are cases of all sizes here and sometimes it's just not proportional to the needs of the case. And so I'm always looking out for ways to save my clients money. And I do feel like you can authenticate screenshots. And if you need to litigate it, that's when you go there. Yeah. And Jerry, in one second, I, I, it makes sense to me if there's just a handful of text messages that are relevant, why go through the whole process? So that, that does make sense to me. So I will, I'll turn it over to Jerry because I'll concede that point, <laughs> but go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, I do have a pretty strong opinion on this, and that is it's always better to do a forensically defensible collection because it's almost, the, the authentication happens due to the expert involved performing the collection, their credentials, and oftentimes hash values are taken at the time of collection. But I do agree 
um, with Melissa that there is an opportunity to authenticate after the fact. And so we have been brought in after collections have been performed, whether they're self-collections by custodians or collections performed by internal IT. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's just not taking those considerations, those forensically defensible considerations up front. But if there is something suspicious or at issue, there are measures we can take to try and authenticate after the fact. I'll tell you what, with this, I think, text message thing in one of my cases that came up, aside from these being screenshots and or produced as evidence themselves, I think they're more commonly used as screenshots that you later embed in a text conversation. Like I just had two weeks ago, a case where a custodian had reported to IT some sexual harassment and had used iFake test me text message to embed that into a conversation they sent to HR. What this accuser, and not to diminish any the validity of any accusations, but in this particular case, from a forensic perspective, when you're using iFake text message, you don't actually get to see what the file name is for that screenshot. And when and you don't know what it is once you embed it into a another text message conversation. But when we extracted that forensically, we saw that the file name for that embedded screenshot said fake text message. So that was the file name and unbeknownst whoops. to, yeah, whoops. <laughs> so it's those sorts of things that we can catch at, upon forensic examination, whether that's at the time of evidence acquisition or after the fact during a forensic analysis to authenticate. And Rick, if you'll allow me, I would like to take the middle ground. <laughs> between Melissa and Jerry. And I would say I generally lean towards thinking that screenshots are problematic a lot more often than they are not problematic. And I think the reason is what we're seeing right now, which is it is very easy, easier than I could have ever really thought to make things up and to make up a text message exchange that looks completely legitimate and that it was real. I think that's the obvious reason why screenshots can be problematic. So I lean that way, generally speaking, but what I'll say is this, I think the most important thing is what I've been saying over and over here is figuring out early on what's important to your case, right? Because not all cases are different and it's the classic lawyer response of it depends. It does depend because each case is going to be totally different. And if text messages are not important in your case, or if there's just one text message that actually matters then that's a really good thing to know as early as possible so that you can have that conversation with opposing counsel and say, listen, there's not that much that's important with text messages. Can we agree to the following? Can we agree that we will screenshot this one text message and use that for evidentiary purposes? But if text messages, like if there's a sexual harassment claim or something where there's a lot of text exchanging going back and forth, and that's a critical piece of the case is when did it happen and who did it? And th that maybe that the forensic collection is going to be vital to that case. And you're going to absolutely want to make sure that you're doing that. So I just think it's really important to think about that and assess that upfront so that you can figure out which is going to, because you, if you can save your client money, then you should save your client money. But if text messages are really important, then you might, they might have to bite the bullet because that's going to be critical for them winning, winning their case. And then one other more obvious challenge that, that we see is that there's typically not just a handful, but a whole bunch, right? There's 
whole Slack channels and direct and multi-direct conversations. There's Teams conversations. There's so all of this screenshotting, all of that would obviously be more burdensome than actually going through a, a, another process. What we see here are becoming more common in data requests than just traditional email and documents. And what we're finding, I'd love to hear from the panel here, because this is that, that expansion into practical applications of pulling in this data for your cases and Jerry, let's start with you on these common data requests. What are you seeing more and more as part of your practice in getting after this data? Yeah, when I look at this list, I tend to think, hey, these aren't very hard to fetch, but fetching the, the data isn't the entire, the entire solution. You want to have whoever's processing this data workflows, pre-established workflows, so that it minimizes any manual post-processing after collection. So you can see here, there's a combination of file types. So I look at the photos and videos, bullet point two and three, and look at that as native multimedia. But everything else on this list is essentially structured data. And the structured data doesn't necessarily come out in the same format. We'll discuss that later. But given the variety of these file types, it's easy enough to capture, but you have to rationalize it and harmonize it into a review platform that has some commonality to, to the review process. And I think traditionally we're shoehorning this into documents. Totally. Aaron, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I agree. And I think that this specifically highlights what Alicia had mentioned earlier about the idea of 80% of data being structured data here in the near future. And I think that this absolutely gives credence to that and would agree that I think at this point, we're probably collecting mobile devices, cloud accounts at probably a two to three time more frequent clip than we are a computer. And I think that really lends itself to this idea that we are moving to a much more structured data environment. And I think it also reiterates the idea with the idea of screenshotting text messages of, I think the the thing that you have to keep in mind is where does it end? If you're going to self-collect on a text message level, at least in the experience that I've seen, if you start cutting corners in one place, you're apt to have clients say, we can just do this here and it can become a snowball. So you got to be re really careful with that. In particular, in today's world where we really do have this entire intermingling of data sources and multiple areas that we really need to collect from to get a full investigative idea of what happened. Absolutely. And then, so Jerry, you mentioned the industry is typically putting these into documents. So what does this data look like when we actually pull this off of a device? Why is the industry putting this into to documents? What is, what are you seeing and what are your, some of your recommendations on managing this type of data? Because it is all flat data and what's that next step with it? Who would like to start here, Melissa? Sure. So, and I think I'm a good person to start because as a practical matter, I think that this is incredibly difficult. Lawyers are used to looking at this sort of evidence as a document and consider why. When we have to attach it to some sort of a brief, that's a document. At trial, a lot of times it's going to be easier to show this sort of thing in some sort of an image. So at the same time, we want that image that we're attaching to the brief that we're showing at trial to look good. It should look 
like, mm-hmm. as close to what it looks like when we as the end users are actually using this functionality. This is tough for me because I want, I do want to shove these square pegs of modern data types into the round hole of documents. And I think that the, the happy place that we land is the technology that we have that at least is a really nice job with taking the native and keeping it looking like the native. And so even if we do need to eventually convert it into something that's more document-like, at least it looks like it looked when the end users were using it. And this, this stuff is critical because as a lawyer, I'm trying to tell my story. And the only way to tell the story very often is just that. It's preserving the context of all the different ways that people are talking. Sometimes people are switching the ways that they're talking mid-conversation. And the only way to actually complete the conversation, understand what happened, is to switch back and forth between communication platforms. For me, that's the importance, but also the struggle. Yeah, and definitely understand that. What we have found is that keeping it in a near native representation of that data so it looks like a document, but you can do things like tag individual items. Obviously, that's what Cloud9 does, but it has created a better process than what we have seen of dragging redaction boxes around, whole swaths of text messages and and all of that. So we'll talk a bit, bit more, but... I know everyone here is chomping at the bit to uh, contribute to this part of the conversation. <laughs> so, Alicia, why don't you kick us no, off? No, I was just going to piggyback on both the things you guys just said. I think Melissa makes really good points about how we use data as lawyers in in litigation. And so why, why do lawyers want it to look a certain way? Because that's how we're trying to use it in trial and in depositions. I think that's important. One of the, I think one of the hurdles, and Rick, you were starting to address this. One of the hurdles is we have document review platforms that have, they're changing, obviously they're evolving, but they are the same they've always been. And we're trying to, this is part of the square peg and round hole. We're trying to shove new types of data into review platforms that really were originally built to just deal with electronic photocopies of documents, like emails and even text messages. I think that's part of the evolution here is not just how do we collect data from structured databases, but how do we review it? Because our review platforms are not equipped to handle a lot of structured data. And so I think that's part of the issue too. And then to Melissa's point of, okay, then how are we going to use it once we've reviewed it and figured out what we need to do? How are we now going to use that in a deposition or something? Absolutely. Sherry or Aaron? Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I agree wholeheartedly with, with what Melissa said. And I think that's something that on the forensic side or just collection in general, that we really have to keep in mind when we're talking about structured data is the authenticity and the completeness of a collection is extremely important, but we need to keep in mind the idea of the end goal is really the presentation. It's how do you take that data? How do you put it into a visually appealing uh, format that makes sense that clearly, but concisely can convey the point of what that data is saying. And so I, I think that's a hugely important fact that we on the collection side have traditionally struggled with in the sense of, again, we're talking about data points. We're not talking about physical 
documents that we can do this representation like you're used to in most of your review platforms and you can just go ahead and image and put a bait number on. It, it really is more complex than that and it's all intertwined and connected. And so that idea of being able to keep it near native visualization, I think assists not only in that final presentation and how it comes across to your audience, but also helps assist in that review because that's the other piece of this that I think that is important to keep in mind that I think for most legal teams, they're used to the idea of, oh goodness, I've got 25,000 documents in this email collection that I've now got to review. When you're talking about text messages, we can easily hit six figures, no problem on a single device. And if you start looking at multiple custodians and multiple sources, the numbers of items that really do need to at least be considered for review is a much higher clip. And so the more that we can keep that review piece of it as easy as possible is also important as well. Yeah, and I think the definition of native here depends on where your perspective is or what seat you're at looking at this from is because the bubble chat on the on this graphic looks like the native, but the way that we pull the data out, what's native to the forensic examiner acquiring this information is columns and rows. It's the structured data, right? And by the way, they don't come out as Excel spreadsheets from the from these systems. So what we're looking at here primarily is what's captured from a phone, but we can't take a full physical image of the phone. There's been security lockdowns from Apple and Google that prevent us from doing that. So our ability to capture forensic images are limited. In fact, if we're dealing with cloud platforms like Slack and M365 or um, some of these other platforms where the data is coming out as structured data, and that's all we're, we're, that's all we're allowed to get, it's, we've got the mercy of the, of the data source provider. So we have to work with that. And if it's columns and rows and they come out as CSV or they come out as JSON or XML, someone's going to need to do the transformation of that data once authenticated to put it back into a high fidelity representation of how users normally see this information. It's that kind of human, more familiar representation of the data that makes more sense for review and production. But all of the activities that happen in the glue as we move data from one place to the next is typically in structured data format. Yeah, and we'll segue here shortly into better analysis of this data, but I would be remiss if I didn't have Melissa drive the point home with screenshots, failures in courts with the Rossbuck case. So Melissa, kick start. Yes, you're picking on me because I think screenshots are very often, and I actually think that despite these cases, these are the exceptions that might prove the rule, but. I'm going to speak mostly about the Rossback case because it's my favorite, and then I'll very briefly talk about the other two. So the Rossback case is a my favorite case because it includes what I think is a truly epic bench slap by Judge Denise Cote, who's a district judge from the SDNY. Here's what happened. This was an employment discrimination case involving claims of sexual harassment and wrongful termination. The primary piece of documentary evidence was that supported that, she, that the plaintiff was sexually harassed by her supervisor was a series of text messages between the plaintiff and her supervisor. And it included sexually suggestive, suggestive comment, and then one of the heart eye emoji, cutesy emojis that, that I actually like that one. Anyway, 
And for a number of reasons, Judge Cote was ultimately able to determine that this image was a fabrication. She just put it out there. It was a fabrication. Now, there were a lot of reasons why she was able to determine this. There were a lot of clues. For one thing, the plaintiff produced the text message in a couple of different image formats, but the phone was really damaged, apparently, with a cracked screen. She claimed that she took a picture of the phone with the cracked screen, but there was no cracked screen in the photo. Uh, there were a lot of clues. But what is maybe the most interesting is that this was an iPhone 5 that the plaintiff had been using at the time. She told us this. And the experts that the defendant got on board knew that iPhone 5s only support up to iPhone operating system 10. And with that operating system, they could tell that the text messages looked wrong. The heart eyes looked wrong. They could tell that the icon depicting the phone's level of battery charge was wrong. The font size and the style of the header, that's not how it looks in an iPhone 5. The icons of the lower portion of the header, that's not how it looks. And based on all of this evidence, the judge was able to rule that this was plainly fabricated. And here we do have an example of a dishonest plaintiff attempting to fabricate text messages and rely on them in court. And this is a place where they litigated it and she lost, rightfully. I do think that in this case, a screenshot, frankly, it was not authentic and therefore couldn't be authenticated. And through litigation, they were able to, the judge was able to ultimately adjudicate it. But no doubt about it, this is, this really shows that what we're talking about here isn't theoretical. Like this is happening. People are relying on text messages. They're really important. People are fabricating them sometimes because that's evidence that they want to rely on in their claims. And I think that employment discrimination cases are ones where you and sexual harassment cases are ones where you may see more of these sorts of issues. So something to be vigilant for. But yeah, this is a an excellent example of a place where screenshots totally failed in court. Yeah, and it doesn't take much for the other person in that dialogue to say, I never wrote this. And that'll raise suspicion and some further forensic activities like the analysis that you described in this case. But you could also take an image of the other person's phone and show that no communications or interactions happened at the date and time suggested. So there's ways that we can corroborate or do the opposite of corroboration. I don't know. What's the word for the opposite of corroboration? I don't even know. But yeah, we can disprove that the, those things happened and further providing circumstantial evidence that it was, it was indeed faked. Yeah, there is some additional effort, more than probably you want to go through that authentication process after the fact, but it does show that those sorts of things can be done. So really briefly, I will just talk about the other two cases. 
but I encourage everybody to read the cases and also maybe even better, there's been a lot of like secondary sources, articles written about these. It's interesting stuff. The Moroccan oil case was one that I think really highlights the importance of social media investigations in court cases. In this case, the court ruled that Facebook screenshots were inadmissible. The court reasoned that the screenshots couldn't be authenticated. And as a result of the ruling, the court dismissed the screenshots as evidence. Really, the court recognized that like anyone can put anything on the internet. And so a screenshot wasn't compelling enough. And so I think that this case stands for the proposition that authentication of social media posts, it requires more than mere confirmation that it belongs to a certain person supporting evidence is really helpful in these cases. Metadata is, I think, particularly important evidence. So that's Moroccan oil. And R.B. Barton was a case where Facebook screenshots were submitted to the police through an anonymous source. The court rejected those screenshots, holding that the anonymous source and the police couldn't validate the authenticity of the screenshots. And that would be one other area that I'd be a little bit careful of when you're talking about screenshotting. If you go that route, I understand it for the idea of proportionality and controlling costs and things like that. But RV Martin shows you have to put a face behind who it was that performed those screenshots. And I'm not an attorney. I just play one on webinars with Britt Clark. So I'll let you actual attorneys go ahead and shoot me down here. But I would also be cautious in the idea of, I think that whoever then takes those screenshots now becomes a witness. And you do run the risk of opening yourself to further questioning depositions about how did you collect them? How do you know that's everything? How do you know that there wasn't a larger universe that you didn't screenshot? So, you know, things I I think to kind of keep in mind if you are going that screenshotting route. Yeah. And Melissa made that point earlier on about how the steps to authenticate screenshots are no different than the steps to authenticate any evidence in court. And it doesn't change. There's not a lighter burden to carry as far as authenticating the document. You still have to have somebody with knowledge who can basically certify in court the steps that they took and that it's an accurate conversation and who the parties were and what the time was and all of that. The burden is still there to be able to authenticate it. And Yeah, I'll just say, I think these cases show that screenshots are, there's problems with them. (laughs) There can be problems with them. Not always, but there can be problems with them. And there's just, they're really important considerations that Melissa just flagged as far as when you're going to be, if you're going to be trying to use screenshots, these are all the things you really need to think about. Yeah, all great points. And so looking back at at the previous slide here, when we you know, screenshots aside, when we look at all of this data, we do collect through a normal process. This is what we're seeing. So what is that next step in data use? How do we leverage this data in a way that actually makes sense for the review teams to be able to efficiently do proper link analysis and review through all of, through all of these different types together, right? Computer activities, geolocation, pictures, videos, text messages, Slack, how do you assemble all of that together? And it first starts with a defensible, efficient and defensible e-discovery process. So Alicia, tell us more about your thoughts on 
these processes here? Yeah, I think I'll just I'll use this opportunity to fuse together a few of the points that we've been making throughout as far as the defensible process. It, it, laying it out, it's really important to start by correctly identifying the universe. And you have to have those conversations with your users to start out with. And then you have to have conversations with people like Aaron and Jerry who are going to tell you what you can do with those data sources. You need to figure out how people are using the data and then figure out what does that look like? What If I need to collect this data, what is that going to look like? How am I going to be able to do that? And so once you've identified what the universe is and what types of data people are, what how people are communicating or how they're collaborating or where they're saving documents, then you need to sit and really have that conversation with your case team and with your client about, okay, but what data is actually important for our legal strategy, for our offensive and defensive legal strategy? Because you, maybe there people are using WhatsApp to communicate all the time, but that doesn't matter for your case. So you're not going to go collect WhatsApp data if it's not relevant. So, you, so first you got to figure out how people are using data sources, and then you got to figure out what's actually important. And then once you have all of that, you can sit down and have conversations with opposing counsel about negotiating the scope of your protocol and the scope of your discovery and saying, here's what we think are the key places to do the data collections. Here's how we propose that we're going to do those data collections, whether it's text messages or whatever it is you're talking about. And then you're going to come to some agreement with opposing counsel about not the scope and the actual process for the collection. And you can't do any of that if you haven't already had those conversations with your users. So I think that's how the process builds so that ultimately you're getting to a point where you've done some work and you're going to have, the client's going to have to spend some money, but ultimately when you're having those negotiation, ne negotiations with opposing counsel and you're getting a good protocol in place, now you're going to save money. So from that point forward, you're going to be saving a lot of money and the process is going to be smooth and efficient because you've negotiated what the whole thing is going to look like and you're not going to be having those fights and you're not going to, sometimes you're going to stumble across some data that you didn't know about. Certainly that happens. There's not going to be these huge fights over, oh, we forgot about the WhatsApp data. No, we didn't forget about it because we've already, we've already talked about it. We've already negotiated it. I'll just really quickly jump in to say that in my experience, those sorts of conversations, negotiations with opposing counsel aren't happening early enough. They're happening so far down the road that it really becomes a much more expensive issue. And so it's become something of a really a pet peeve of mine when we get into a case and there hasn't been a meaningful 26F conference. And the ESI protocol is so general that the parties haven't hammered out exactly what they're going to be doing here. It, it's too late to start getting into it, or maybe it's not too late, but it's frankly just so expensive and stressful that the earlier you can have those conversations with people at the client who know the kinds of communications that are relevant and understand how they've been communicating and making sure that you're also talking to data stewards, right? So it's not just the business people who are like talking about the issues, working with the issues that are relevant in the case. It's also the data steward of some sort of structured data source 
I don't know, maybe, or something like Salesforce. You, I very often come into cases and it's incredible, especially at large companies that it can be difficult finding the person who owns the thing that winds up being important in the case. Very often the inside lawyers don't know about it, or at least don't know enough. And this is an iterative process that you really got to start early talking to all of the custodians, potential custodians and data stewards to make sure that not only do we know about the relevant data sources, but also that we know who understands them. Right. Only then can we hook that person up with an expert like Aaron or Jerry or Rick and actually start doing something meaningful with the data. And having these conversations early and often and having meaningful negotiations and entering into a meaningful ESI protocol with the other side is critical. The reality about ESI protocols is that what we're seeing from the courts is that they care about them now. They are deferring to ESI protocols. And it didn't used to be like that because courts have not wanted to deal with e-discovery issues for a long time, but they can't hide anymore. <laughs> and so now they have to deal with them. And what we're seeing is that they are relying on parties to negotiate ESI, and then they are deferring to whatever is in the protocol to, to govern disputes. And to Melissa's point, if you have a really vague protocol that's very general and doesn't have a lot of the issues dealt with it, that might cause you some real problems later on when you have specific issues that you're fighting about. And we'll talk about it shortly here in the Noom case because a vague protocol was part of the problem in that case. And the protocols matter. And if you come to your discovery council after you've been litigating for a while and you say, and the discovery council says, where's your ESI protocol? And you say, huh? The discovery council is going to be sad and upset and a little frustrated because they're important and they matter and they can really save a lot of headache down the road. So it's important to, to engage people like Melissa and I to help with those conversations and to get some of those details knocked out early on. I also want to, oh, go ahead, Jerry. Okay. When it comes to data stewards, they're becoming fewer in number because if you're relying on the internal IT folks to be those data stewards, understanding what each of their platforms entail, a lot of the data is going to the cloud and the IT folks don't know all the ins and outs of every single platform that's migrated to the cloud, whether that's M365 or Google Workspace or Slack. And it's very difficult to rely on those IT folks for the assembly of the different parts of what we call a document without knowing in very intimate detail where these things reside. Like Teams is a very complicated thing to collect. There's Teams chats inside of individual custodian mailboxes. And there's also Teams chats in SharePoint. And those relate to the channel chats, right? The, you've got the ad hoc chats, you've got the channel chats, and then you have all of those attachments as modern attachments or soft links to where they actually reside in OneDrive. And you have to collect all of these components in order to reconstruct a cohesive representation of what was communicated within the Teams platform. So it takes really a lot of specialty and expertise when it comes to understanding not just that particular data source, but there's all sorts of complexity 
like that in other platforms as well. Like for example, if you're collecting a Google Calendar, they don't come with attachments unless you use a specialty tool to collect attachments from Google Calendar. You can't get them through Takeout and you can't get them through Google Vault. And one other, I think, just quick point, and that is the data steward may not be in IT, very often not in IT. IT sometimes, maybe often, doesn't know about particular applications that are being used inside the organization. So you got to ask around. IT, partnering with IT is really important, can be really helpful, but you may find that a particular data steward is outside of IT and IT won't be able to help you. I absolutely concur with kind of all aspects of this in the sense of, even though we're talking about modern data and the idea of now mobile and cloud, we also have to remember that some of the old school methods of things are absolutely applicable and should be used. Things like data mapping, but to the point of using data mapping up front to understand what sources of data exist and where are they. And then I think it's a great point to look at uh, custodian questionnaires. We find so often now that yes, in a perfect world, the IT department knows everything that's going on within an organization. But simply by doing custodian questionnaires, we find out that custodians are in fact saving things locally, even though they're supposed to be saving them to cloud. Or there's additional external hard drives and data sources where everything just happens to get backed up to because that's convenient for me. I think some of those old school methods that, that we've been talking about for years and years now still are absolutely applicable. And speaking of old school methods, one of the reoccurring themes we've had throughout this presentation is what do we do with this data? And we're finding the industry is creating documents out of this data. For instance, a, a text message exchange could be now a PDF that you're reviewing for the whole entire phone or PDFs for the whole entire phone, so all conversations, various PDFs. So we're finding that to be problematic. I'd like to hear from the panel, your thoughts on converting all of that structured data into documents for a linear document review workflow, are there better ways to approach this problem? Melissa, well, so how about you kick us off? So I think the answer is yes. Although as a lawyer who is always behind some others that are discussing this with me, I, I struggle with this. And so here's where I really rely on the experts. And I'm always looking to the experts to also tell me the new thing that's out there, because this has been changing so quickly. But this gets back to what we were talking about, the square peg in the round hole. We know that the way that we've been reviewing a lot of these data sources isn't the best way to do it. And that, Rick, you mentioned before the approach of of long text exchanges and applying redactions and mm -hmm. lots of confusion over how to unitize long conversation chains. Is it 24 hours? Is it more? Is it less? How do we chunk things up appropriately? And I turn to the experts for this. And I also love coming to discussions like this because I learn more about the new tech tools out there that are doing a better job. And we've just, we're looking at a slide here that shows that there are tools out there that make this a lot easier and ultimately far more efficient in terms of review. Yeah. And Aaron, I know you've got a ton of experience with 
traditional discovery workflows versus modern and kind of everything in between. We'd love to hear your perspective on how you're managing these data types. Yeah, no, it's, it really is a challenge with the idea of looking at a traditional, I think what most attorneys consider a document and now trying to interweave these modern data types. It's, I think that the biggest challenges that we're really looking at are in particular linking the traditional, what is a family is now a little bit more complex in the modern data world with the idea of whether it's chat or text messaging, you tend to have both text plus GIF. Plus you've got video, photo, everything intertwined. And the biggest challenge by far, I think up until this point for us has been, how do we again, make that into a format, which is presentable, which makes sense, which is easy to review, which is as close to what an end user would see on a device, or if they're in the team's application. And I think that's the highlight that, that I think is the idea of having embedded links, having the ability to keep things as near native as possible so that everything does look as native as you can for as long as possible really helps the teams. Yeah. Yeah, what we're looking at here is not a document, by the way. This is not a rasterized representation of chat communication. This is a very unique user interface that I think the industry has been needing and wanting for so long. So it's not a document, but it is an interface that you can review that has some fidelity to the original and has some user interactivity where you can multi-select and do some really creative things as part of the review process that isn't part of the traditional review workflow. So I like it. Hey, Rick, what is this tool? <laughs> so obviously this is a screenshot from cloud nine with ESI analyst, but yeah, when we looked at solving this challenge, our we could have gone down the document path, but we were realizing even early on four years ago, over four years ago, that having an exercise of drawing boxes for redaction and losing context and text messages, it was, let's keep everything native. And so that allows for things like, for instance, global deduplication, right? So let's say all of us are on a group text, but we typically see in doc review platforms, if you image each of our devices, you would see that group message in there five times. And when our system, deduplication is really important, just like it was very important early on for email stores, PSTs, NSFs, group-wise, if you go way, way back. But then it's also creating those threads, right? Creating the conversation threads between each individual and representing that in a way where you can just tag what is relevant and produce only what is relevant and the redactions are done upon export, for instance. Another key feature that we found of being interesting is that I have not only a phone number, but I have a WhatsApp account ID. I've got a Slack ID, Facebook Messenger ID. I've got email. So all of those tying to a single entity or a person or what we would call an actor, that normalization process is really important. So a single toggle, I can see all conversations between me and other individuals. And then obviously expanding out of just text messages, but looking at geolocation and computer forensic activities like plugging in thumb drives, all of that is really important as well to help build and tell that story. So all of that is what we certainly have built into what you're briefly seeing here. This is the part of the presentation where I say, if you're interested in learning more, just give us a shout so we can get back to our regular scheduled program of really good content. But going yeah. to, know, yeah, Rick, go really quickly, I'll just say that that all sounded to me like pretty complicated. 
The funny thing is actually, this makes the review process so much more efficient, so much cleaner. It's so inefficient shoving this sort of stuff into a platform like Relativity. And so part of why I like this is it really actually creates efficiencies that you totally lose otherwise. So not only can you do a better job substantively, but ultimately you're going to be saving a lot of time doing it this way. So looking at this next phase of our conversation today, it's looking at the old assumptions and then the new challenges, right? Jerry, you had put this together. I think your presentation on this is great. Walk us through some of these new banes that we're finding that we may not have covered in detail yet on this call. Yeah, sure. So this first bullet point isn't a new bane. It's an old one. It was how you, how do you treat Excel spreadsheets? And that was dealing with what would be ostensibly structured data way back in the day. And I know that we originally tried to shove that into a document. We would realize that and it turned out terrible. It looked terrible, right? It would overflow into additional pages for the additional columns. And then ultimately, I think we ended up on saying, let's produce that native, right? And I think that's the framework still today that we should be treating structured data. Let's deal with it native. Let's deal with it in its structured format. It's just a matter of presenting it in the way that is user-friendly. But again, it's applying special treatment where special treatment is needed. And so that is, it's not a far cry from how we dealt with Excel back in the day. But some of the new banes or new challenges is around chat transcript unitization. So if you are creating a document, do you produce or process it as one gigantic transcript? I might have a text conversation with my wife going back to 2010. Do you want tens of thousands of pages of that, that chat conversation? Now that no one's doing that today, granted, but I still see some shops processing each individual message as an individual document, right? So an LOL is one document, like K, see you there is another document. And so that's also not user-friendly. And I think most, most vendors are doing 24 hour transcripts, which is also is equally arbitrary. As far as I'm concerned, what I think the more advanced shops are doing is considering what's called use, what is it? Sorry. It's called chat density analysis. So that's taking a statistical approach on looking at the gaps and between conversations with participants and then unitizing those accordingly. You might get a three page document transcript for a chat conversation. You might get a five, but there are drawbacks and advantages of that too, because the drawback is that you might throw your review productivity statistics off because if you've got a chat transcript, that's one page. And then another that's 500, your, some reviewers will look like they're falling behind their peers when you're running analysis on that's something practical that we uncovered recently, but the benefit is that you get better tar off of chat communications. Now, if you're using the chat density analysis, you're not just getting arbitrary one page transcripts which are better than individual documents for TAR, but feeding the computer linguistics works really well using the density analysis. The modern attachments, again, like I said before, they're soft links to other locations like OneDrive or Dropbox or Drive. And these cloud systems keep a ton of different versions of these documents, literally every couple of seconds as you're typing or stop, as you stop typing, it creates a new version in the background. 
So if you elect to collect, collect all versions of a particular attachment, you might get hundreds, if not thousands of versions of that document. Or if you elect to get only one, it might give you the most recent version, which isn't necessarily the point in time document that was attached to a particular chat. It may have been updated dramatically since the point in time in which it was attached. So you don't want attached. So you don't want the most recent one two years on. So modern attachments is a challenge. Custodian ownership, if you've got a shared drive, OneDrive or Google Drive, custodianship doesn't really apply because it's single instance storage. In other words, it's a document with multiple owners. So you know how the whole point of having this collaboration, these collaboration platforms is for multiple people to be working on it. And there isn't a distinct owner necessarily. It's almost like the challenge of department shares, right? If you've got a department share, how do you know which custodian that belongs to you? Just assign it a generic one. And so that's exacerbated with cloud storage and cloud-based documents, for example, coming out of Google drive, those aren't actual documents in the cloud. So you have all the native Google documents. And when you export those out, they turn into Microsoft office equivalents. So your slide turns into a PowerPoint, your doc turns into a word document or, or your sheets turns into a Excel file. So all those get brand new born on create dates, and that's not that's not consistent or um, it's forensically consistent, but it's not practically consistent with the actual create date for that document, especially if it's been uploaded from a user's uh, laptop, right? Much earlier on. And then structured data. That's what we've been talking about during this entire presentation. Yeah. So modern attachments has been a topic I've heard at a few master's conferences and this Noom case really highlights that. Alicia, I would love to have you do a deep dive here for us to help us understand this further. Yeah, I, and I just want to say that I was just taking notes on that part, Jerry, when you were talking, because a couple of the things that you said really resonated with me with some things that I'm working on, and it made me think about things I need to ask custodians and stuff. So that's why I love being on these panels, because I'm like learning. Yeah, colleagues, I'm <laughs> learning as I go. I'm thinking, oh yeah, that's something I need to think about. So thanks for that. Yeah, so the Noom case is, the Noom case is so interesting because I think it really illustrates why the concept of modern attachments is so tricky and why there are so many considerations and why it's such a relevant topic right now. Because it, I think this case really is a culmination of all the things that we've been talking about today and all the considerations that you have to think about and what the courts are really looking at when ultimately a dispute comes in front of them that they have to decide. So I'll give a really high level overview because I'm sure most people are familiar with this case by now because a lot of people are talking about it. but. In the Noom case, so it really, it deals with, I think, four main themes. First is proportionality. Second is the process of collecting data. Third is the format of the data itself and what categories of documents certain types of data would fall into. And then the last is deference to protocols or what the content of a protocol is. So in the Noom case, this was a motion to reconsider, a motion to compel that the plaintiff filed. And what had happened in this case is that the defendant, through negotiation of the protocol, had used Google Vault to collect data. And in, in collecting data via Google Vault, it did not keep hyperlinks in emails um, affiliated with those emails. So basically, a lot of us are used to using things like iManage, for example, or a OneDrive where you, when you attach a document to an email, you're linking it 
to the actual location where that document is stored, as opposed to attaching it like a Word document or something where you can just open that copy up in the email. So in this particular case, when they did the collection via Google Vault, it was not keeping those families together. And what it would do is it would collect just the email and then somewhere else, if an attachment was independently considered to be relevant or responsive, it was being grabbed separately. And so when the documents were then produced, you were getting two things. You were either getting emails that were, that had abandoned the attachments altogether. And you just got the email with, you could see a hyperlink, but there was no attachment produced anywhere in the production, or you would get an email that was produced and then the attachment produced somewhere else, but they weren't connected up. So there wasn't any metadata to link the two in a family structure. And so you just have to go hunt and try to find if those attachments were actually in the production or not. And the defendant, so there was a motion to compel that the plaintiff lost, and then they filed a motion to reconsider and they lost that too. And the defendant basically said a couple of things. They said, number one, hyperlinks are not attachments. And because they're not attachments, we did not have to collect them together and we didn't have to produce them as a family unit. The court agreed with that, which I think is a little crazy. And the reason they agreed with that was twofold. Number one, they legitimately made the, the court made the argument that they aren't actually attachments, that just because you link something doesn't mean that it's in, it's integral to the context and content of that communication, because there are times when you could link things like, for example, a link to a case or a link to a web page or something, and that isn't critical to the content of the communication. They also said that they weren't attachments because in the protocol did not define the word attachment. It didn't define it at all but it didn't specifically say in the protocol that hyperlinks were considered attachments. And if it had said that, the outcome I think would have changed. If that had been defined in the protocol, I think the outcome would have changed. So the court agreed and said hyperlinks are not attachments. And so they don't have to be collected and produced together. The court also, there was also a proportionality argument. Noom said they didn't, it would be disproportionate to the case if they had to go back and spend money to recollect everything and to go back and put everything together and that it would be disproportionate and the court agreed. And Noom also made the argument that under Sedona Principle 6, they're best situated to determine how to do the collection and that they chose to use this particular tool. It was negotiated in the protocol. And so that's that. And the court agreed with that as well and said, Yes, you, the responding party is best situated to use reasonable methods to respond to requests. And so ultimately, the one final note that the court made was that Noom had always been willing to point plaintiff to the location of attachments in a production if there were specific questions that came up. So if the plaintiff was looking at, a, at an email and it's there's a hyperlink to some document and it seemed like that document was really important, then they could ask Noom and Noom, the defendants, would tell them where that document was in the production. <clears throat> now, I think that's highly inefficient. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's just a wild way to go about doing things. I totally understand the proportionality argument and I understand to me that's what is really persuasive is that this was negotiated in the protocol 
and they did it the way that they agreed on. And unfortunately, hyperlinks were maybe not contemplated before the process started. And so ultimately, this is where they ended up with what I consider to be a highly inefficient process. I think that hyperlinks in this case would be attachments. They certainly are demonstrably attachments in certain circumstances in this case. And to have to then go back and forth and ask for specific documents in the production, I think is really inefficient. And they're probably going to end up spending some time and money having to go through that process. But really my takeaway on this is goes back to the points we've been making all along, which is everything is changing all the time. And you have to get a handle on data really early on in a case so that you can understand what is and isn't going to be important. And in this case, both parties had very sophisticated ESI teams, and I'm not sure that anybody really missed anything. It just is a really good example of how everything is changing so fast. And it's really important to have people with knowledge and expertise who can think of these things and who can say, oh, you're using Google to manage your documents. That's cloud-based storage. So there might be hyperlinks to documents as opposed to attachments. Let's figure out how we want to deal with that. So that's what the case looked like. And I think it's just a really good example of all the considerations that need to be made and to be thought of throughout the duration of a case. It's great how what you just summarized does tie everything we're talking about together and yeah. how the Noon case shows that, yes, it's a bit bold west out there still, and it will be for quite a while. There's flexibility in approaching that problem, even midstream or in the end. But the big takeaway here, as far upstream as you can possibly get and have those conversations and have those considerations, bring in the experts early. It's, mm -hmm. it's much easier to uh, solve those problems earlier on than have to go back and make it up. In the Noom case, they just didn't in some instances. Yeah. <laughs> they argued it away. Yeah. Yeah. And I know Jerry has, a, it, it has, wants to say something. I'll just say that I don't know if pre-planning would have necessarily changed this. It's hard to really say, but what I will say is that hyperlinks are incredibly common. And so hopefully, if nothing else, people watching this will think about hyperlinks next time they're approaching their case and they're thinking about an ESI protocol. Because the reality is hyperlinks are increasingly common at law firms. We obviously use them through iManage. At businesses are using them as part of their cloud storage. So this is really something we're going to be seeing a lot more of. And so if you get nothing else out of this, at least think about hyperlinks next time you're making junior negotiations. <laughs> Yeah, I think ultimately there needs to be a distinction between the types of hyperlinks. It's not that hard to distinguish between a hyperlink to a, a external web page versus an internal OneDrive. So there's some easy um, parsing of those things that you can do to the, distinguish between the two. And platforms like Microsoft 365, if you've got the E5 license and you're using eDiscovery Premium as part of their pr purview offering, the modern attachments get pulled into the collection. No longer are we as forensic examiners required to collect it from a bunch of different places to reassemble the Teams chat, for example. So Teams chats and emails coming out of M365, they've already taken care of that. But that is an enterprise-grade platform, right? There's plenty of platforms out there that are using modern attachments that don't provide you with that convenience. Okay, so if it's not obvious already, <laughs> this evidence can no longer be ignored. We need to pay attention to it and even as far upstream as possible. But with that being stated, I think it's a good time to take a look at the sort of state of the union or state of tech, right? So Aaron's going to walk us through 
just some examples of how we can get after this data. Yeah, and so this is a chart just basically based on what we know today, and all of this may be changed as, as soon as tomorrow with how quickly everything is changing. But I think it really does highlight the idea of some of the base things of things like standard messaging apps, iMessages, Android messages. Those are things that we can pretty easily collect these days. And it now extends to things like Teams and Slack. You will notice that we've got some of these in yellow and it's interesting to look at some of these and understand to the point of the hyperlink conversation, which is the fact that for Microsoft 365, yes, we can collect things like email, but we all know Microsoft 365 is such a monster as far as the applications that exist there. So we can't just say, hey, Microsoft 365, that's a green, all systems are go, because there's so many different levels of information contained inside of many of these platforms. Things like, is your case truly driven towards email or does it also include end user activity where we need to go in and dig into the Microsoft 365 audit logs? Jerry mentioned E5 licensing. There's different levels of licensing with these cloud-based tools, which give you different levels of access and different levels of ability to pull down different types of information. I, I would say that what we see here, generally there's a way to collect the information. The bigger question for most legal teams is how far do we need to dig? and how deep do we need to go? And again, those initial conversations of what are we looking to get out of this are so important, even when you're talking about cloud, because there's so many different areas of information and it can be downloaded quite honestly and collected in so many different formats. And I think to that as well with this, we have this cycle where I think Jerry can attest to this too, that it used to be that iPhones were the hardest thing to collect from because of the encryption and security that iPhone had and Androids were really easy. And that is now in some ways flip-flopped. It also goes to the idea of things like social media and websites. We had a couple tools out there some years ago where social media was fairly straightforward, but with the changing in security, the changing in protocols and authentications, social media can be more challenging. And the same goes with websites. It's intriguing to me that we've seen far more requests recently for website-based information and data, which has really been a challenge. The idea that we talked about of part of our job is not just collecting the data, but it's how do we present that to legal teams in a visual format, which really gives a representation of what the data saying is much more difficult when we look at things like financial-based websites. We've had quite a few kind of what I would call non-regular CRMs, not the necessarily, hey, I've got Salesforce, but smaller CRMs where really what you're getting at is data. But when you look at the CRM itself on a webpage, it's really graphical, it's really visual, and that's really how the user experience is driven. Again, th this is just a high level of some of the things that we can grab, but who knows, tomorrow it may all change and we may be adding new categories and modifying how this looks entirely. Yeah, and I'd add to that this is our high-level understanding of how, how our capabilities fall across these different platforms. And every vendor or service provider is going to be different. They're going to have different strengths and weaknesses in these areas, and they might have some unique solutions. But you'd be hard-pressed to say that one vendor has all of these things licked and marked in green right? There's a lot of R&D that goes into solving these problems. And there's different focus areas for different service providers, depending on the clients and what they're asking them to do. So it's like the, what's the most common requests that they're getting for Slack and Teams. There's different approaches 
And so it's worthwhile to interview your service providers and ask them, how are you collecting Slack? Do you only consume the JSON? Or are you using the API with some kind of custom tool? Or are you using a third-party tool like Ona to go in there and collect the data and triage it? There's different ways to approach each of these platforms, and they all have different ramifications for the downstream processing. And so it's the ability to collect, but the ability, like we said earlier, to rationalize this data so that it's presented adequately for, for review. And a big part of that too is flexibility. We know that technology will continue to change. There's going to be new apps. Apple is going to throw some curveballs at us every now and then make us change our processes. With that, Aaron and Jerry, let's, so iPhone I know is making some changes. They're rolling those out where you can actually edit within a certain amount of time, some other things. So uh, this is a good example that as a technology company, as a practitioner and forensics and services, we have to continually keep up to date as best we can on some of these changes. And so for instance, Aaron or Jerry, who would like to kick off this, these new iPhone updates here? Uh, I can start. It, it's, I think at a high level, I think most people have now heard about it iOS 16. I think it was just yesterday on our local news here, there was a whole segment on iOS 16 and what's happening. It is out there. It's coming. I think the official release is in the fall, but you can actually go download the beta now. If you want to go ahead and turn your world upside down, please don't do it on your main work iPhone. I use a secondary device, but there are some really intriguing things coming in iOS 16 and they could have implications in specific for our industry. And as it relates to legal and the idea of text messages inside of cases, the two, I think that are really getting the most talking point at this stage are the ability to edit messages, unsend messages, and then also they are changing what has over the last couple of years really been that if I delete something, it is gone. It's not going to be there to now there is the ability to undelete a message within a 30 day period of time. I think that there is still a lot of, on both of these items, uh, things that we don't necessarily know 100% about yet. I know Jerry and his team have been doing some testing, and so I think he can dig a little bit further into the weeds on that. But I do think that these are two things that that really could come into play, in, in, in particular in the legal field when we're talking about messages and what's there and what's not. But for me, one of the things that, that I really think is still interesting in iOS 16 is the idea of the lock screens. And what Apple is doing is basically making it so that you can have multiple lock screens. And the biggest example of this that I can think of is people are gonna have a lock screen for work and a lock screen for home or non-work application. And why that's important to me is I, I think it still shows that it is on Apple's mind that devices are used for multiple things. And you're gonna have this cross I don't know if you'd consider it contamination or simply interweaving of home and work data together. And so the idea of the widget is, or I'm sorry, the lock screen is you can have multiple widgets now. In addition to simply having different pictures, I can have specific widgets, which are work built versus when I'm not in the office, I can have specific widgets on my lock screen, which are geared towards personal. And so I think it's a really interesting idea that it's still on people's mind that a lot of people at BYOD. A lot of people are using their device for multiple reasons, both work and personal. And so I think that's something that we will continue to see in the future as well. 
Yeah, and we have been able to dig into the iOS 16 developer three release, and we are doing R&D around that front. I'd say the red light, green light chart that we had on the previous slide for iMessage now changes from green to yellow once iOS 16 is in production, because some of these things will create some issues. We can't immediately rely on forensic software to be able to deal with this and uncover some of the details that'll help us understand when things were edited, when things were unsent. And by the way, the user only has 15 minutes to edit or unsend a message. We polled the audience in Denver during master's conference, and we got unanimous feedback that those are negative. Those have negative impact to e-discovery, right? To give someone the ability to edit or unsend a message, especially if that content is under lit hold, presents some issues for us. But um, Aaron mentioned, now we get back in the second bullet, the ability to recover deleted messages, which is perceived as unanimously good because they were being deleted permanently in the past. And now those user deleted messages will go from your iMessage screen to a subfolder that is for deleted messages. And it'll sit there for 30 days before it's permanently deleted. It, it has the exact same behavior as photos. You know how if you delete a photo, it'll go into a deleted folder, the same behavior, you'll see the same behavior with deleted messages. That's great. There's one other feature, Aaron, by the way, I like your commentary on the lock screen, but there's another one that was just announced by Apple this past week, and it's the lockdown feature. Has anyone heard about this? So yeah. it's a cybersecurity feature that Apple has built into, I think iOS 16, they're going to allow users in really uh, when they're in sensitive connections or sensitive areas that have connections like a ton of public Wi-Fi. So if you're in the airport, for example, and you're feeling like you're being hacked, or if you're in DC <laughs> for that matter, and you feel like you're getting hacked, you can turn your phone into lockdown and it'll shut down all of the ports on your phone such that it'll, you're in a protective bubble and no hacking attempts can be performed. Sounds great, but for us in this industry, just like custodians who return their corporate issued phones with a reset, I anticipate they're going to be returned in lockdown mode more frequently as well, considering that's an option. I think these changes are so interesting. And Jerry, to your point about how we had pulled the audience to see where people shake out, I definitely think the ability to edit and unsend messages is going to have the the most obvious implications for someone like me in my practice and how we're going to navigate those because it's only a 15 minute window but that's enough time to do stuff that's enough time to make edits that may be significant that's enough time to to change your mind about something and to recall it back and from what i understand from some of the beta testing is that the on the back end, you'll be able to see that someone has edited or unsent a message and you'll be able to obviously see whatever the edits are, but you won't be able to see the content of the original message. And so that to me obviously is interesting because what is what do you do with information that something's been edited when you can't actually see what the edits were, but like opens up a new evidentiary problem, right? And so I think I think when I sit and think about when is this going to when are we likely going to see this happen or be important? I think of 
workplace discrimination cases or sexual harassment cases or where there's some type of fraud or impropriety and somebody maybe has a change of heart or a, a, their judgment snaps back to <laughs> good judgment versus bad judgment or they are overtly trying to cover up bad behavior by making an edit or a change. I think about things like someone sends a nasty text message and it's oh, just kidding. And they try to wheel it, dial it back. And I think that's when you're going to see it happen a lot. And so you, I think about, okay, as far as we know, these changes are only going to work if both parties have the new operating system installed. So they're both iPhone users and they have iOS 16 installed. Okay. So if they don't, are we talking about people need to be more proactive with taking screenshots? If something bad, if they're getting bad text messages or some evidence of bad behavior, is it like, oh, I got I'm going to save that one for the file. It's like, you got to save a, do a screenshot and save it. Or it, do you, are you thinking that, are there going to be bad actors who are thinking about the fact that, oh, they have the iOS 16 as well, so I can undelete this and there's never going to be any evidence of it. I just, I think it really brings up a lot of considerations for what we're going to have to do from an evidentiary perspective and when we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper, when, when we're going to have to collect from both parties, when we're going to have to start comparing notes on what those messages looked like. Yeah, absolutely agree. And it's, it really goes to the point of things are going to be changing quite a bit. And I think I speak for the panel that reach out to any of us. If you have any questions on the forensic side, practical side, law application, any and all of those, reach out to us. We do try to avail ourselves to answer these questions. We'll be at conferences speaking on the same topic, but I would like to thank the panel. One, it was just great working with you in person for Denver. Great working with you on this webinar and look forward to any other in-person events we can do together. So thank you everyone.